Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we're going to be talking to a wobbly Quaker, Brad Laird, official member of the IWW. That's not all he is by any means. He's a Girl Scout troop leader, passionate husband, father, and grandfather, chair of the board of directors of South Bend, Indiana's Community for Peace and Nonviolence. And one more piece that makes him particularly interesting to me for Spirit in Action, he was once destined to be a Lutheran minister, and he considers himself to be a post-theist, post-atheist, deeply committed to his work for the nurture and healing of the world, both in practical and spiritual ways. Today's Spirit in Action visit with Brad Laird takes place in front of a live audience at the annual FGC, that is, Friends General Conference gathering, held this year in Toledo, Ohio last year by Niagara Falls, and next year in Grinnell, Iowa. It moves all around the USA, even once in Canada. Brad Laird joins me in person. Brad, I'm delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Hi, Mark. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you, because we actually have had communication for some time. I met you on Facebook, liked your posts, thought that they were provocative and deep in a way that really made me want to meet you. I met you a few years ago. And since then, one of the things that bonded us was the fact that your family was taking off for Africa and I was taking off for Africa on the same day back in 2014, completely independently. Coincidences, yes. We could call it a coincidence, but it might just be the true essence of reality. It was real. You know, I think maybe I'm going to start by talking to you. There's any number of things in terms of activism that we could talk about, but I think I want to talk about first that trip to Africa for you, where you went and spent the year in Ghana with your wife teaching there. What did you learn out of that that changed you from who you were before, Brad? Wow. I don't remember what I was like before, and I know it was totally different. I learned how incredibly generous the people of Ghana are, how amazing the music and the dance and the poetry is. I learned that their government is corrupt, but it's honestly corrupt, unlike ours, which is dishonestly corrupt. In other words, it's transparent there. When they make mistakes, it's easy to see through it. I learned that when police catch somebody, they confess right away, unlike here. They don't get Miranda rights. I learned that in the villages, there never is any poverty. As soon as someone is in the down and out, someone takes them in. What's happening in the cities is they're looking more and more like us. Now there are people sleeping under bridges. People are coming from the villages. I learned that many people are wanting to revitalize village life so that the 100 different ethnic groups in Ghana, it's like twice the size of Indiana, but there's 100 ethnic groups and 100 languages or dialects. I I learned that they know how to do multicultural conversations all the time and that if they can keep the kids um, back at home by adding good water, a medical clinic, and adding a few teachers, they could probably do that and then give them lots of trips to the city for the big excitement. What's happening is a lot of people are coming to the city and entering poverty and selling things on the street corner. 
And so we had this mix of cultural clashes. I also experienced being a member of the last Quaker meeting in Ghana. There is one Quaker meeting uh, next to the Achimota School. The Achimota School is a school that most African leaders have gone to. And uh, the English built a Quaker meeting there in order to service the school. It is now essentially all Ghanaian. And uh, so we attended there for a year. There are no walls, just a roof. And uh, I got to watch the dragonflies eat the mosquitoes before they got to me. And the Agama lizards sun themselves on the wall and listen to the storms and the rain come down and uh, listen to the intonations of ministry from people of different ethnic groups, the Ewe and the Ga and the Akan. There's much more I want to talk to about that. Your activism in no way just starts or ends there in Ghana. I think the fact that you chose to go at all speaks very strongly of what your family is about. I do not see Brad Laird as a separate operating unit from your family. Am I being presumptuous there? No. I have a picture of them right here to remind me. We have my wife, who is my favorite incarnation of the goddess, Dr. Monica Tetzloff, and she got the Fulbright that brought us to Ghana. My youngest daughter is Hannah, and Ketsia, who has joined our family, she is from Burundi. Her family had come over, and it wound up to be more convenient for her to stay with us and go to the high school around the corner. So I learned to cook in Ghana, and so Ketsia and I wind up making similar things by different names because she's from East Africa, and we lived in West Africa. The reason that I had you here, again, I said your posts on Facebook were thought-provoking for me. And when I stayed at your house three years ago and we had the deep discussions, I learned something about your past that made me think that it was kind of a perfect fusion of spirit and activism working in the world. Now, I use the word spirit, but I think you refer to yourself as a post-theist, post-atheist, and you probably have another adjective on there. Tell us who you are in using those descriptors, if you would. Just so people aren't too frightened, I agree with William James in The Varieties of Religious Experience when he talks about the divine as the more. It's something more than we can fully grasp or understand. William James is very kind to Quakers, uh, as you might know if you've read that. So I was born a Lutheran, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and my grandfather was a pastor. My father very wisely converted from being a Methodist to a Lutheran because he wasn't going to be able to marry my mother if he didn't. So I was raised going to Lutheran schools. I was in Lutheran choirs. I memorized the Bible every day and was never more upset than when we switched from the King James to the Revised Standard Version because it messed up a lot of the things I memorized and had to get confused and try to rememorize stuff. And I was born in Oakland, California, so I thought it was normal to have on one side of my house the headquarters of the Hells Angels and the headquarters of the Black Panthers on, on the other direction. I'm riding my bicycle around, and people shout and carry signs, and uh, this is... I'm born in 1956, so, you know, when I'm 12 years old, it's 1968. That's, of course, a big year, and that's when my social consciousness was born. So I'm singing in choirs and trying to figure things out and wanting the world to be a better place, just like the Hells Angels want a better place, and the Black Panthers want a better place, and Jesus wants a better place, and the Lutherans want a better place, but they'd pretty much just like the rest of the world to leave them alone if they could. So... 
I decide that I'm probably going to do something that none of my uncles did, because in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, women can't become pastors. So I decided I will become a pastor. My uncles didn't. Great disappointment to my grandfather. So I do that. In the meantime, my parents are freaking out. They're freaking out because we live in Oakland in 1968. So my dad starts applying for transfers, and he didn't get the first one to Yakawa, Washington, but he got the second one. So we became white flight, and we did not move to the suburbs. We moved to Idaho. So I met, went from being one of the few white kids in my neighborhood to being one of the few non-Mormons. Many wonderful Mormon friends and enemies, because that's all there was around to interact with, with the little enclaves of Catholics and Lutherans and others here. And uh, so... After a rough first year, I, I got a fishing pole and, and a shotgun and my skis, and Sylvia Salinas's dad agreed to let me take her out because I learned enough Spanish that he would allow that. So life was good. Sylvia broke my heart a little bit later for an older guy. but So I'm, I'm on my way. I'm going to go. I'm going to become a Lutheran minister, and I go to Concordia Lutheran College in Portland, Oregon. It's now a university. It was a college then, two-year college. And the heresy battle breaks out in the Missouri Synod, and they start calling my professors into an inquisition, basically grilling them to see whether or not they had the correct beliefs. My Greek professor, they kept asking him, well, what does this mean? How do we interpret it? And uh, he would tell them, well, this is what the Greek word means, but how you interpret it is something you get to discern. And uh, he managed to slip through. Um, the dean of students studied Rogerian psychology, and he turned the questions all back on them, and he slipped through, and those that answered directly were axed. So to go to senior college in Fort Wayne was the next step, and they had closed that down for heresy. This is when seminary and exile had happened at the seminary in St. Louis. And I called them up, and I said, I have questions about the heresy battle, and they told me that asking the questions was heresy. So I pretty quickly decided not to go there. Valparaiso University in Tacoma... Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma were both interested in me, both Lutheran, and uh, Valpo gave me a little more money, great books program, and they gave me a philosophy professor to help me with my questions. Dr. Warren Rubel's great. He's also an ordained Lutheran minister in the LCMS, and he did a fabulous job. Um, he was my teacher in the great books program. I remember, you know, having to read Plato's works and then come in and present them, and his job was just to keep the students from going too far astray. I remember every one of my Christ College program classes, not so much um, the other ones, some, but um, he did a great job. I became an atheist. He asked me good questions, and I could not, I could not in honesty say that I believed anything about what they thought that God was at that point. Now, my favorite prophet is Jonah, because I keep getting barfed up where I wasn't intending to go. And one of the things is, is I still felt this call to ministry that I needed to do something. So I did two things. First, instead of going to seminary, I was the guy that smoked cigarettes and played cards with the inpatient psychiatric units. I had a great love for working with people with uh, psychiatric illness that put them in the hospital. And I started studying also drug addiction and Later on, my career took off, and I did a lot of dual diagnosis work, people who were both addicts and had major psychiatric diagnoses. But then I also started going to the Unitarian Church because I didn't have to believe anything in particular, and the sermons were brain candy. I bought my first house in Gary, Indiana, with my first wife, and we started attending church at, in Hyde Park in Chicago. Beautiful, beautiful Unitarian Church there just around the corner from what is now a Quaker meeting house, 57th Street. 
But I didn't know that then, and I didn't know the Quakers then. So I kept exploring notions of what religion meant. And then my life fell apart. So my, my ex-wife and I were both working a job and a half having kids, and uh, we kept passing each other in the night for about five years, and we forgot who each other was, and our lives fell apart. At the same time, also, the money was running out in social services, and my job became closing programs and firing people. So my interpersonal life was horrible. My professional life felt just horrible. So I went and I drove a lift truck. And um, I realized that as bad as work was in social services, they treated people really horrible in warehouses. So I started looking for what I could do with my life, and I started helping a friend build a board of directors for a prisoner reentry program in South Bend because I had administrative experience in the field of social work. And uh, he wanted to do it like the Quakers did, decision-making, and I had no idea what that was. And so I started pulling books off of his shelf. He had gone to Earlham School of Religion, and I read Sandra Cronk about mysticism, and then I started reading other Quaker stuff, and I said, crap, I might not have had to have left the church if I had known this stuff. And he said, there's a Quaker meeting in South Bend. I said, oh, really? And uh, so I went there, I sat down, and I've been there ever since. So my process was that I became a post-atheist because I started arguing with the atheists that I used to agree with because I found them to be as fundamentalist about their atheism as some theists were about their theism. And the rigidity of the thinking didn't work for me either way. There is something more. There's almost everything in the universe that we don't know about. Dark matter, dark energy, most of the universe is inexplicable to us. We can't put together um, quantum physics and, and classical physics. We don't know how to do most of these things. And that tells me I need to not be too sure about a lot of things. But I am pretty sure about my experience, and I learned that in Quakerism, that I could maybe trust that experience tested in community. At the same time, I decided that labor unions and Jesus said the same thing. They said, don't be afraid. Let's get together and do something amazing. So where two or three are gathered in one name or another, you can do one thing or another. So um, Quakers taught me about testing leadings in community. So I now have a ministry committee that helps me to address my sense of ministry. My sense of ministry is directed to looking at how we practice class and economic erasure in our conversations, in our media, and in our Quaker meetings. I grew up Lutheran as well, a different kind, Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. And I remember learning the Lutheran Catechism, which would always include the question, whatever you were learning from the Catechism, what does this mean? And it occurs to me now that that's actually a helpful question. The catechism supplied the answer for you, but in life now later, it's a great question to ask whatever you're looking at. Yeah. It's a perk of, of a Lutheran background, as it turns out. Well, you know, the Price brothers came from the Wisconsin Synod and, and jumped to the Missouri Synod because it was bigger. Wisconsin was too small for their political ambitions. It's your guys' fault that they came over and <laughs> did that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. I'm looking at your shirt. What does it say? This is the Christ figure of the IWW. This is Joe Hill. And if you uh, look up the song Joe Hill, it says he never died. And uh, he was assassinated by the state of Utah for a trumped-up charge of murder, which he didn't commit. 
but he was an organizer for the IWW in in Utah. So he's part of the the mythological legacy as well as the historical legacy of the IWW. He was also a bard and wrote many songs, and now songs are also written about him. So he didn't die because his spirit marches on, they say. And this, this is really a Christ kind of figure then that we look at the resurrection. Let's resurrect the song Joe Hill to get a true sense of this labor history. Hill was born in Sweden in 1879 and executed in 1915. Before his death, he wrote, I die like a true rebel. Don't waste any time mourning. Organize. First released in the 1930s, the song is a labor classic. Here's Joe Jenks, another Northern Spirit Radio guest, with his rendition of Joe Hill. We continue our conversation with Brad Laird right after this. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he Salt Lake Joe, I says to him Standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I ain't dead Says Joe, but I ain't dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I Takes more than guns to kill a man Says Joe, I did not die Says Joe, I did not die Standing there as big as life Smiling with his eyes Says Joe, what they could never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize Joe Hill ain't dead, he says to me Joe Hill ain't never died Where workers strike and organize Joe by their side Joe Hill is by their side From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers stand up for their rights It's there you'll find Joe Hill It's there you'll find Joe Hill I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I but Joe you're ten years dead 
I never died, says he. I never died, says he. Never died, says he. The singer Joe Jenks singing about another Joe, Joe Hill, doing a pretty good job of telling his story and talking about his values. Yeah, don't mourn, organize. Just before he died, he said, don't mourn for me. Go out and organize. That's how we can honor him. It's kind of like what Jesus said, you know, (laughs) go out and bring the good news to the world. What's the gospel? So when you ask the question, like um, in the catechism, when we had to get up and recite the words when we were confirmed at 14 years old, this is also part of what we do here is we say, yeah, let's go out. We, got, we have work to do. We can put people together. So the IWW is different than other unions in that we focus on solidarity unionism. Solidarity unionism theory is written by a Quaker, of all people, Stoughton Lind. Stoughton Lind's uh, membership is at 57th Street Meeting. Stoughton Lind was a friend of Howard Zinn and was teaching history like Howard Zinn Sutton then went to Hanoi, Vietnam, during the war and came back and was blackballed, like Howard's in, and could no longer teach history. So Alice, his wife, and him went and sequentially got law degrees and worked with union organizing. And then later on, wound up in northeast Ohio. When the steel mills were shutting down, they were working with the unions there and then worked at the AFC's request with the supermax prisons that went up there and helped deal with people who were being treated very inhumanely in those those settings. So I've actually gone on my pilgrimage with my family to visit Alice and Stott and Lind in, in Illinois Yearly Meeting, which is where South Bend Friends is located in the Quaker world. We've had Stott and Lind out, and I do workshops then on developing your Quaker labor voice and coming up with queries and handing out awards of uh, Little Red Sawn books from the IWW. Utah Phillips is uh, one of the heroes of the IWW. He actually was a Unitarian out in Utah. Uh, He died recently, but a great song singer, and he would say, well, we took all the good old Christian hymns and gave them better words and turned them into union songs. Whether they're better or not, this is one of the similarities there. I tell the IWW all the time, you're not so different than the churches. You can figure out how to avoid the mistakes, because we have our purists and the Puritans there that want to do purges and get rid of others, like the LCMS was doing. And we have people who are trying to get people to get along. And then we've got excommunication of sorts, uh, throwing people out for perceived errors in social theory uh, assessment, uh, as well as practice. And we also have a lot of wonderful people who are really skilled at sitting down and getting people to talk to each other. So we've had a recent court decision that has made it harder to be a union in the public sector. And uh, the IWW doesn't care because we, first of all, only have members who pay us dues. We don't collect any dues from people who aren't members and never have. We take it directly uh, without having the boss involved, and we sit down and we build our own committees. It's bottom-up structure. We minimize hierarchy. So the IWW is similar to at least my yearly meetings form of polity in that we are bottom-up. Our faith and practice is descriptive, not prescriptive. In the IWW, we try to have it that the locals get to make the decision whether you'll have a National Labor Relations Board vote or whether you won't. 
There's a Burgerville campaign right now out in Portland, and they didn't go for a vote for a while, and then they decided to go ahead and have one store do a vote and then another store in the chain do a vote, and I think there's 16. And what we're saying to ourselves, and they won't mind me saying this at this point, is they're doing it mainly to mess with them. So this is what happens. You start a campaign. You don't tell the boss. If you're lucky, you let them know when you're ready. If you're unlucky, they find out before then. Either way, you prepare for that. Immediately, the boss hires an enforcer. We find out because they're required by law to register, and we get an email from the federal government saying an enforcer has been hired. The enforcer immediately does four or five things. First of all is which they call the IWW godless communists, to which they often now respond, well, we got a Quaker or two. So (laughs) the second thing they'll do is they'll say, you're going to lose the vote. And they can say, oh, we don't want to vote. We would like to handle some of these safety problems we're going on. We would like to have make some food improvements. There's a couple of things that are a little problematic. And the third is is that we would like to have a living wage. And then they come out and say other things like nobody agrees with you. And then they have other unions and pastors and priests stand up and support them publicly. So we prepare for exactly what they do all the time. And what happens is that more and more people join. So that's happened there. There's another campaign, Stardust Campaign in New York City, which is a bunch of singers, Hollywood singers, do their singing as well as being waiters and waitresses, and uh, they were training them badly. Sometimes they don't take the IWW seriously, and so they had a picket line, and Teamster trucks were still driving through with supplies. So every branch of IWW in the nation contacted their local Teamster heads and put the pressure. It was actually a Teamster president in New Jersey who then caught the heat and then the truck stopped coming in and then the boss folded because you can't run a restaurant very long if you can't get food in. I just wanted to mention that IWW stands for Industrial Workers of the World, also known as Wobblies. Yes, started in 1905. Mother Jones was one of the signers. And uh, by the way, the patron saint of our local is Helen Keller. She was also an IWW member. I had read about that along the way. So, Brad... You went past kind of quickly, from my point of view, what being post-theist, post-atheist is. And you have mentioned several times the patron saints and so on of Wobblies and others. You can't take the full Lutheran out. You can't take the Lutheran out. It's a good point. And being post-theist and post-atheist is a statement about what you don't believe. What do you believe? Yeah. I believe in love, and I believe that I don't really fully understand what that means because I know that other people love differently than I do. When my life fell apart, the first people who loved me were uh, the LGBT community, and they did it in two ways. One, I had acted out sexually in my first marriage, because our relationship had died 10 years before, and it hurt her, and she was angry about it and was prepared to tell everyone. And so I had to tell people, and I was working in an HIV program Out of about 25 people, there were three of us that were heterosexual. And so I went to my boss and I said, I've got a real angry wife that I'm going through a divorce with, and she's likely to call you and and detail some of my misdeeds and probably add a few other elements that might, might not be true, but this is what she's likely to tell you. And my gay friends looked at me and said, is that all you did? <laughs> and, <laughs> okay, thanks for letting us know. And then I had to tell my Quaker meeting because I was also teaching first day school. 
So um, I had this blessing of having to tell the truth and not having to worry about what would happen. In fact, there was a um, FWCC event, and it was held at, at our yearly meeting, and they asked me to speak on peacemaking. And so I went in and I told them that I think that uh, in order to work peace, you have to be peace, and I have to deal with some fears, and I'm afraid you're going to find some things out about me. So I told them first, and then we worked on Gandhi and, and Wink and some other things. And I had some very interested elderly Quaker women with their jaws dropped when I said that, and I was afraid I had really ruined my future. They keep asking me back now for that sort of stuff. And in fact, my wife was in the audience. My current wife was in the audience at that time, and we weren't married. And later on, it became important in our courtship because uh, she said she knew that I would probably be honest because um, she saw me being honest when it was difficult. So I believe in that. And I am married to Monica, and I promise not to embarrass her in this interview. She's the most loving person I've ever met. And it's wonderful to be a Quaker with her. And uh, so, yeah, the gay community in Monica, I see the act of love, and now we get to do that together and to work it out. She also asked um, when we were recording if um, I'd be willing to have another child. And I didn't know then that if I'd answered no, we wouldn't be married. But I answered yes, and uh, so that's why we uh, adopted Hannah. So ba- I, I don't know. Back to theism and atheism. So I, I see God as as a word that is difficult. So I, I've gone back and I look at some of the ancient Hebrew uh, writers who say that we we should not even say the name you know Yahweh. We should not have an image of God. Right. This is in the Ten Commandments. You know about idolatry, but creating images of God, which I, because I've also studied psychoanalysis, uh, went to the Center for Psychoanalytic Study and had my own analysis, and I do object relations theory, I understand that we, how we construct psych- psychological notions. And so I understand that how we use projection, both negative and positive projection into others and into our images of God. So it's a useful concept in that we look at everything that's good, that's groovy, that's loving, that's sweet, that's kind into God. Some people also project fear and jealousy and anger. Whatever you want, you can find it in the Bible and you can project it into one's notion of God. So I experience the word God as a symbolic notion that is very easy for me to turn into idolatrous notions some sort of self-serving projection for myself rather than something that opens me up to be more loving, better at community building. So my notion of God right now for what it's, when it's useful is it's something that opens me up to be more loving and building more community at whatever level of abstraction, whether it's global or my neighborhood or my Quaker meeting. Beyond that, so I used to be very allergic to the word God and Jesus and things like that for a while in my atheist phase, and even in part of my post-atheist phase, now I'm okay. I, I can go back. I can sing the old hymns I used to sing from the Lutheran hymnal. I can do that, and and I simply reinterpret the words. That's what everyone else is doing all the time. I'm just honestly doing it now. Um, I, I'm going to make it mean what works for me now. I went to a 12-step meeting for a while. Um, one of them, I went to an Al-Anon meeting for a couple of years because they have black belts in dealing with resentment, and, and I had a lot of resentment towards my ex, and that wasn't doing my kids any good. It wasn't doing me any good. It wasn't doing her any good. And I, I worked very hard on not being resentful. And one of the ways you do that is you pray five times a day for several months that the person that you have resentments against, that they have what I want, what I personally want that they will have. 
And it's a wonderful object relations experience because it changes how you envision the person. It's just harder to get mad at them when I want them to have what I want. And, and it also made me think, what do I really want? I want world peace. I want our kids to be happy. I want our grandkids to be happy. I actually want her to be happy, too. And so it got better, and so there's no traction now. So much wonderful stuff that you're sharing, Brad. But I do want to remind people that they are listening to Spirit in Action, Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org. Can we all say that together? Northernspiritradio.org. Those voices you heard in the background are part of the audience here at the Friends General Conference gathering where I'm interviewing Brad Laird for Spirit in Action. On our website, you'll find a place for comments. Please do visit and post a comment. Let us know what you're thinking. Give us some direction and give us kudos or whatever the opposite of a kudo is. Because I'm a Quaker, I don't tend to speak in the opposite of positive. Is that true? I think so. There's also a donate button. This is full-time work. We depend on your donations and not government and not corporations for our income. We ask that you support us and, even more importantly, that you support your local community radio station, all of your local media. It's so important to not let media get any more centralized right now. More than 90% of our media is held by just six hands, and that is far too concentrated and too limiting of a view. Your local community radio station does an excellent job of providing a local voice for both music and news. Please support them first. Brad Laird is here on his Quaker Quaker listing. He describes himself as a wobbly Quaker, a Girl Scout troop leader, husband, father, and grandfather. And I don't know if that was Brad in terms of order of preference or just since you're not hierarchical, I suppose it wouldn't be that way. No, I, I'm no longer a Girl Scout troop leader. I, I was for one year. It's one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. My daughter goes to an inner city school. It's the only public Montessori school in South Bend. But there's a lot of poverty there, right? So there's turnover because people who are poor get to move often. But yeah, just being with uh, economic diversity with these girls and the, the power of saying, gosh, you did a great coloring job. And to have these girls look at me and like they haven't heard that for a long time or something. I don't know. It was just really powerful. They still grow up. I go to the school often enough and, and I get hugged by groups of little girls. And it's just a, a remarkable experience. I'm doing childcare here at French General Conference. And uh, I've seen some of these kids also grow up here. And it warms my heart. Um, in terms of the other things, I have now five children If when we include Ketsia. In, in Africa, it's not uncommon for if someone moves in with you, they, I said, what do you want me to call you? She said, call me daughter. And in that in no way, I'm not replacing her father in any way, and, but it's, it's a way that we honor each other. We went to the high school dance here the other night, and all four of us were dancing and having a great time. And I think that is the Holy Spirit right there when we, we were all dancing and having a great time. And I know some of these other high school kids. I've watched them grow up, and they, they hang out and want to be Quaker. One of them got a tattoo of the AFSC star on them, which how many of you have branded yourself with your parents' religion? <laughs> AFSC is American Friends Service Committee. Speaking of parents' religion, you were saying that when you were, you still considered yourself a Lutheran, you felt a call to ministry, and now you aren't a Lutheran anymore. How do you interpret your call to ministry now? Which prophet said, and my, you know, my bones will cry out if I'm not otherwise given a chance? Um, 
So the fact that there is a call is just not something I question anymore. It's, it just burns within me. So I'm emotionally demonstrative. I have a daughter who is an introvert, and you have to know her to know what she's feeling. She's also a horse whisperer and other things. But I'm emotionally demonstrative. People don't usually have to wonder what I'm thinking or feeling. So it's important for me in my ministry that whatever it is I'm figuring out I'm doing, that I don't outrun my guide, to use Quaker speak. And so I need a committee. I need a group of people to enter in discernment with me because I get passionate and I can outrun a good plan. One of the first things that I have had to do in my ministry is I've had to let go a bunch of things because I didn't have time for it. Um, Well, before we went to Africa, uh, we got Hannah and then Monica went back to teaching full-time and I stayed home and I was the stay-at-home parent for a while. And then I started adjuncting in sociology to make money. And then when we got back from Africa, I didn't get my resume out and all the not-for-profits and the Quakers descended upon me. So I'm on the Ministry and Advancement Committee and oversee Quaker meetings in five states. And Ministry and Council got me. And I'm the liaison to a worship group in, in the next county over. So we go to two Quaker meetings often on Sunday. And then there was, you know, clearness committees for marriage and membership and other things that I wind up. So it's Another group asked me to be a board president because they lost other parts. So suddenly I'm working, you know, more than full time and, and, but no paycheck. It was fine. We could, we could do that. And I will be looking to do some other things, but I'm letting go of uh, the board presidency. I've, um, after nine years, except for in Africa, I'm off of ministry and advancement now. So I'm letting go of some things and taking a break and looking at how the time organizes around that. I've spent most of my career working with people who are in poverty in one way or another. And it is a profound violence that our culture perpetuates on our sisters and brothers. And the people who are in poverty are growing, and those who are in poverty are at more risk for um, economic hardships and lack of health care and uh, a variety of other things, food insecurity. And it breaks my heart. And we've constructed white flight, we've constructed suburbs, we've constructed all sorts of ways for people with privilege not to see it. We've constructed movies and stories not to see it. One of my favorite two actresses is what in this show on Netflix is Grace and Frankie. It's great, but nobody's got everybody's got money. <laughs> Now, there are, there are exceptions to the rule. I saw a concern that Roseanne was taken off the air, although it may well should have been, but it was one of the few shows that was showing working class struggling. We remove it from our dialogue, from our vision, from what our kids who are privileged can see, and so if you don't see it, you can't address it. And Martin Luther King talked about, you know, we've got to show forth the violence that is already there. People complained he was violent. He was not. He simply made visible the violence that was already present. I don't know how to completely do that yet. I know I can talk. This is actually being here as a part of fulfilling my ministry to say this message. But in large part, I'll bet you I'm talking to the choir. And maybe not completely, but There's a lot of people who will shake their heads and go off, and it won't change their lives much. And I'm going to be strategizing for ways to do that. One way to do that is to be a union organizer. That's also a part of the ministry. Say, no, I'm sorry, it's not okay to make six or seven bucks an hour. It's just not okay. And we're not going to take it anymore, and this is how it's going to go. But you can't do that alone. You've got to do it with others. And we now have fast food place, Burgerville, uh, the, the first one in the United States, doing that, and we'll look to continue that work. 
there is a special concern for Quakers that I really don't have my mind around yet for unprogrammed Quakers. And I'll be real specific. I don't think I have a mass message for programmed Quakers. I don't know how to speak to that part of them yet. I think I still have some allergies, some woundedness around my demythologization and, and what have you that I experience there. So I, I'm not ready to speak to them. But unprogrammed Quakers, particularly, and again, not the conservatives, but the Benites and the Hicksites, I'm ready to, to rumble with us. George Lakey, a friend, has done some of the good work of bringing up matters of Quakers in class. So I think he's done a real good start. In fact, I took a workshop from him, I don't know, eight years ago at FGC conference. And well, I don't know how long it was. It was before Arab Spring. And I remember it was because he was talking about how different classes talk and think and that we have to understand that or it won't work. And then he said, you know, and, and we really need to talk about Norway and how, you know, it did that. I said, you know, you need to write that up, man. And he had told us before that working class people think about getting the job done. And so I said, you know, quit being so upper class and get her done, you know. And so he did. He put that out and he put out um, an article on, on how the Swedes in Norway uh, defeated the 1% and that became viral and was one of the inspiring documents for, for people in the Arab Spring reading that about how you can do this. So there's this, I'm not going to take a lot of credit for Arab Spring, but, you know, I had my little finger in there on that. And, you know, George Lake, he's a wonderful writer and, and a good thinker. And whether you agree with him all or not, he's provocative and wonderful. And I want to hold his work up. Uh, this is a Quaker who is also addressing this matter probably more eloquently from the academic end of the world. And I think other, other voices besides the academic also need to be engaged among Quakers on, on this. And I know others are doing the work too. I don't want to suggest that it's not going on. But what I hear when I talk to people is we're not sure what exactly to do, right? So part of the query I have is how, you know, how do we do it? What would our Quaker meetings look like if we opened up People aren't going to come in. What happens if we do go and hang out with the Baptists and do projects together with them and, you know, hang out with the charismatic group over there? There's a priest in South Bend who a while ago had the problem of shrinking population, and they had to combine a Polish and a Mexican congregation. <laughs> and you know, can you just imagine? You'd be sitting there saying, oh, crap, how am I going to do this? He was brilliant. First of all, he already spoke English and Spanish. He learned Polish, and then he got the women to cook together. And that's all it took. <laughs> that's all it took. When they were eating together and cooking together, it worked. So I tell you what, food and alcohol, for those who can drink alcohol safely, are powerful things. Another story is in my ministry to expand our family's relationship within our community is that I fell into officiating at weddings. It was a mistake. Some Quaker, a, a Wobbly, an IWW member, heard that I was a minister. I didn't tell him that we're all ministers and that we've abolished the laity. But would you marry me? And I said, are your dues paid up? He said, no. I said, pay your dues up. It's a value-added service of me being a delegate. So I've performed in several of those. <laughs> but then a friend of mine in Indianapolis put up after the last election that if you are LGBTQ or undocumented and you're afraid of what will happen later on and you want to get married now, I'll do it for free. 
And so I said, oh, I'd put that out on Facebook too. Well, I've, I've done two of those. <laughs> two sisters, each marrying someone. And uh, one is now we are sponsors for his green card. And the other one, we've written information trying to work on that. But the dad doesn't speak English. And we went over because now, now I'm an uncle to Juanito, right? Because Juanito this has come along. And the grandpa, the abuelo, now wanted to get to know me. He doesn't speak English. And I've got Spanglish. And he's got his Tex-Mex. But he likes tequila. And so he sits down and we have met over tequila. And we found out after drinking for a while that he owns a house in Mexico and I want to go. And my son, my adopted son, is Mexican-American. And he's never been to Mexico. And he says, oh, you you come down. I have a house down in Mexico. It's not in the tourist areas. You come for free, and we have tequila. And so we're going to try and plan that next summer. So we have community on the west side, and I'm going to learn more Spanish. <laughs> Food and alcohol, is that is that a good route for overcoming the divide and conquer feeling that we have going on in society, especially in, in labor? Yes. So if we go in and we're just beginning to put our committee together, we categorize every worker. Right, So your number ones are the people that agree with you and will do things to help you. And number twos are those that agree with you and aren't going to do anything. Three, they're waffling back and forth. Four, they disagree and won't do anything. And five, they disagree and will work against you. Now, if I know the guy who's a five and we have a beer or two together or the woman and we have a beer or two together, come over and they eat dinner with us, and we're getting ready to do an action, and I say, look, I know you really disagree with this. Could you just stand back? That could make the difference between winning and losing. I don't have to turn them into a one. We only try to move a person one step at a time. So being in relationship with people you disagree with who are you're on different sides on an issue is important, and it's a way for me to love them and at the same time disagree with them. I want to ask you, Brad, some more things about labor unions and religion. I have for a long time said that our society is suffering. Some people think of religion as only those institutions which specifically call themselves as churches. But I've used as an example that unions fulfill my description of a religion, at least in some implementations. Some churches don't fill my description of religion either. So what do you think it is that is the essence of whatever, the spiritual community, maybe that's how, as a Quaker, I would describe it, or religion, and how this dovetails or doesn't with labor unions? Well, the word religion, you know, is related to ligament, right? So it's a connecting tissue. It connects us both in present, across to other people, and historically, and it connects us to our vision of where we want to go. Labor unions have a vision of where they want to go. You'd like to have more voice in your work. Some labor unions uh, would prefer to have the workers be in full control, and we do have examples of employee-owned businesses. So, you know, I tend to drink New Belgium beer because it's an employee-owned company. So, you know, get your fat tire on. We've got our literature <laughs> that you read. You've got the great literature, in every different union has its particular sets, so we each have our different canons. Um, we have our hymns. <laughs> so we have the communal aspects of things that we do together. And there is a spirit, boy, and that... So the word spirit is hard because it's used in so many ways. And it's okay for me to use small s spirit, too. There is a small s spirit, a sense of spirit like we used in high school, sense of unity, of camaraderie that comes together. That spirit gets bigger when there are awesome things that happen that exceed comprehension, and we know that we're into another space. 
and it's good. And then there is ways that we fall apart, which are just like the churches, and we fracture into many different ways that we want to go forward. So the unions are just like religion in that regard. They fight. The AFLC-CIO comes together, and, and then other parts of it fracture off again. They're like the Roman Catholics, right? They won't like me saying that. But um, I think that community is an important part of that, that first of all, you, you know, individually we believe that there can be a better future and that there are ways that you can go about that. And it has to be about caring for each other, even the people you don't like, even the coworker I don't like I'm going to fight for. Because really, <laughs> there are too many people that just don't have enough. The vision that I hope for, I, I think we can afford, with robots coming up, to work a four-hour day for the same amount of money. In fact, for more money, we could each have enough, enough food, health care, education, and we could work less hours, and we would all have enough. Some of the privileged would have less. But we would all have enough, and we would have more time for more poetry writing, more singing, more dancing, and more Quaker meetings balanced with yoga, because otherwise we sit too often and hurt ourselves. Wow, that sounds really good. How do we do that? Well, I think we start. We start doing that. So you start, if you don't have a union, start one. Call up a union and say, help me start a union. And if they won't help you, call me. <laughs> the IWW will help send trainers out. How do you begin your own committee? And you don't, the boss doesn't have to know. You can have your committee running for two years. We've had committees running who've changed the boss's mind on things, and they don't, the boss doesn't even know they have a union. We call it conditioning your work environment. There's ways to get together and make your work better without that. So you start doing that. Be with people you trust who will give you honest, loving feedback. Get those people. And if you're with a lot of people who don't give you honest, loving feedback, well, you need to change that. <laughs> I had to do it the hard way, and Americans too often do it the hard way. I blew my life up in order to decide to start over and, and build it right. But you don't have to blow your life up in order to start doing it right. Find loving community. So, you know, Quakerism may not work, doesn't work for everyone. It does for me. Find a loving community. Get anchored in it. I loved watching the people at the pipeline, you know, what was it South Dakota, right? Because they were grounded in the elders' work there. Yeah, Standing Rock. They were grounded in the elders' work so that they, they not only were doing important work of protesting an evil process that could damage the water and pollute the earth and, and continue our habit of carbon burning, but they were deeply grounded in what they were doing so they could sustain themselves longer. I watch a lot of people come in as activists and burn out. I watch it again and again and again. And that hasn't happened to me. I get tired sometimes. Then I go on retreat. <laughs> I get frustrated and I hand over to other people things to do. But I have people that keep me grounded, keep me from losing it. So, yeah, call the IWW, you know, join a Quaker meeting um, or some other religious group. I also like yoga. I have a hat here from Costa Rica. My third child became a yoga instructor, and she called us up one day and said, my, my yoga group is going on retreat to Costa Rica, uh, and I can't afford it. And I talked to Monica, and we decided that we'd buy her ticket and we'd go with her. We, we were talking about God earlier. I just want to tell you that I no longer consider sloth to be uh, a sin. I consider it to be an aspiration. I have met several that I would like to be like. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're going to have to end this pretty quick. I wanted to read to you a quote and see what you think of this person. It says, On many days I am a theist, even a Christian universalist. On others I wax between atheism and agnosticism. 
I am all these things, and I hold to the need to listen. If there is a hereafter, a notion that is transformed in my mind with Einstein's space-time unity, eternity begins now. If not, still eternity is the eternal now. Either way, now is the time to live rightly, lovingly, sweetly, even angrily at the social system that, for many of us, unconsciously maims, kills, and hates. What do you think of that? Did I write that? You did. (laughs) (laughs) Back in 2011. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I still agree with that. Yeah. 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 Einstein was really important for me in helping to upend my notions of what time isn't. And it helped me with uh, Rudolf Bultmann, was a theologian who talked about demythologizing, a Lutheran, German Lutheran theologian, who talked about demythologizing and remythologizing yourself. For a long time, I went through the demythologization where everything was uprooted. But now, now I see these stories. These are really important stories, and whether we like them or not, every one of us is greatly affected by them, and we need to engage these stories and the stories on top of them, the stories about quantum physics and the stories about the theories of relativity and how that bends our sense of time and therefore truth in what we do. There's a theologian whose name I can't remember. Anyway, they've updated Tillich from finding faith in doubt to finding faith in nihilism. Basically, is if everything is going away, if, if history is even going to be erased when the sun envelops the earth, what does that mean? Well, I don't know what it means. What I do know is that whether there is an eternity or not, we do have right now. I get to love you right now. Or I can screw that up and be miserable. <laughs> and I would rather love you. And I'm glad that you would. And I do love you too, Brad. I'm so thankful for your work. I really think that we could talk for another couple of hours very easily about your labor organizing and how that is really rooted in caring for the social structure. I really would love to hear more about that at another time. I'm thankful for the way that you exemplify what a healthy, good family is because I get to watch your videos via YouTube. I get to see Hannah growing now in the past three years that I've known her, past four years that I've known her. I get to see so much good happening in the way that you're living your life with love right now, post-theist, post-atheist, and (laughs) post-toasties. I really am thankful for all of that, Brad. And I'm also thankful, by the way, for Catherine Thomas, who has co-anchored this edition of Spirit in Action. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. And, and I'm grateful, too, my fellow recovering Lutheran. And, uh, and thank you, Mark. And I'm grateful for your family as well. Thank you, Brad. And you'll find links to some of the causes, including the IWW, FindNordenSpiritRadio.org, where you just search for Brad Laird, and you'll find the links to some important organizations. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. <laughs> ¶¶